Today, we're in James chapter 1, and we're going to cover verses 16 to 18. And so we just pray and we'll get into it. Father, thank you, Lord, because you are good and your love endures forever. And today we're going to learn about you as the Father of lights, and from you comes every good and perfect gift. So we just pray that you help us to understand what they mean and to understand more of who you are and your beautiful character. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the crown of life and the reward for overcoming temptation, and that was James 1, 12 to 16. And this week is, as I said, James 1, 16 to 18, and we learn about the perfect and good gifts we receive from our Heavenly Father. And we've made it our tradition in the book of James that we all practice our memory verses. We have James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Let's do it together. Let's read out loud. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Fantastic. So, today's scripture, James 1, 16 to 18, says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So I've titled this, Good and Perfect Gifts from the Father of Lights. So in verses 16 and 17 it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, every good and perfect gift is from above. So what can we learn? What does it mean? Well, it says, Do not be deceived. Who is the deceiver? Yeah, the devil. Okay. He's the deceiver. He wants to deceive us into believing that the good things that God gives us are not actually good. And he also wants to deceive us that the things that he gives us are good. Of course they're not. He wants us to doubt God's goodness, his perfection, and his unconditional agape love for us. Now, the Garden of Eden is the best place to learn about this deception. So do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, Satan, as we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now what's he doing there? What's Satan doing? Yeah, creating doubt. And then he misquotes God when he says, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. He's causing confusion. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. <laughs> Come back to that. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And that, of course, is an outright lie and a contradiction of God's truth. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And this is Satan's direct challenge to God's goodness, you see. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, the craving for physical pleasure, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that represents the lust of the eyes or craving for everything we see, and a tree desirable to make one wise, that's a pride of life, or pride in our achievements and possessions, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And what's happening here? Sin is bringing shame and separation from God. So they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So again, we just come back to the start of these verses. Has God said? Satan is creating doubt. That's what Satan does. He first creates doubt. Then he misquotes God to cause confusion. He says you should not eat of every tree of the garden. Well, of course, no, God didn't say that. He said just of the one tree, right? And then Eve responds with this extra rule. And it sounds like common sense. If you're in the garden and if you eat that fruit, you're going to die. Can't you make up some other rules? You must not go within 20 meters of it. You must not look at it. You know, you can make all these rules up, yeah? But adding rules to regulate behavior is legalism. And does it work? Can you regulate behavior by adding rules? No. Rules and legalism is always a substitute for a true love relationship with God. A person who loves God will obey him because they want to, not because they have to, not because they are bound by a system of rules and regulations. Rules and regulations equals religion, which is the opposite or antithesis of relationship. It's free choice. Relationship is about free choice. Not you must, but you can. We have the opportunity to love God, and we take that opportunity. And then Satan moves in for the kill. He says, you will not surely die. For God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so Satan here is directly challenging God's integrity and his goodness. So what's our verse for today? It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And here Satan is saying, no, 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 no. God's holding the good stuff back. But he'd already given Adam and Eve everything that was good. You see? God already gives us the good things. Everything that we need, he has already given us, and Satan says, that's not enough. You need more. And it's interesting what the scriptures say in there in Genesis chapter 3. Satan denies the consequence of sin. And in place of the good and perfect gifts that God had already given Adam and Eve, Satan offers them the world. Sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? The things that are good for food, physical cravings, pleasant to the eyes, cravings what we see, and a tree desirable to make one wise, that's a pride of life. Now where do you find that in the New Testament? Well, that's in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So Satan uses the world to draw us in. The gifts that Satan has are in the world. The gifts that God gives us are from heaven. They're from above. And those verses in the New Living Translation, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things it offers you. Did you hear that? Nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. Again, these are not from the Father, but are from this world. So there's two types of gifts. I want to get this clear. There's gifts that come from God, and there's gifts that are offered by Satan and are of this world. So this has always been the tension between God and Satan. God desires to give us the good gifts. Satan desires to give us deceitful gifts. They appear good, but they cause what? In the end, death, yeah? They cause death. And this is a choice that every person has. And it's like kids at the dinner table. You know, if you give them Coke and Fairy Floss, they'll eat that over meat and veggies any day, right? True? Chocolate? Yes. (laughs) All right. I mean, I know it's true for myself too. (laughs) But not the Coke and the Fairy Floss, but the chocolate. (laughs) I hate Fairy Floss. I hate Coke. But chocolate? Don't eat it any day. So, eating a healthy meal takes discipline. And what's the long term benefit? We become strong and healthy. Whereas you eat the rubbish food, it makes us sick eventually. So, let's look at the consequences of Adam and Eve's choice. In Genesis 3 8, it says that Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So, we can learn two things here the good and perfect gifts that God gives us keep us in fellowship with himself and we experience complete satisfaction and joy in our love relationship with God. Adam and Eve were completely content in the Garden of Eden. They had everything they needed. There was nothing more that could make them any happier than what they already had. Does that make sense? Now, Satan's gifts are designed to draw us away from or out of fellowship with God and will eventually lead to death. Now, even as Christians, we can experience death when we choose to be dominated by a sin nature. I won't read them now because of time, but Romans 8, 5 and 6. And this death is in the sense that we suffer loss. The loss of relationships, the loss of reputation, the loss of reward in heaven, eternal reward. The loss of freedom to serve God, the loss of our health, the loss of our virginity and purity and all those things. So it's really important for us that we trust what God says and to believe that what he gives us is really the best thing for us. Because we will only find true joy and contentment in our relationship with God. And in bold there it says, God first and foremost has given us himself. There is no greater gift that we can receive than to be in relationship with him. Okay, I'll say that again. God's first and foremost gift is himself. There's no greater gift The relationship with God is what truly satisfies us. So don't be like Adam and Eve. Don't throw it all away for what the world has to offer. Like them, you will find that your God replacement, I call that your God replacement because you're replacing your affections 
for God with affections for something else will only cause you pain and suffering and leave you empty and dry. And God warns us in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, it says, Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they're not gods at all? So the pagan nations, they would worship a particular idol. They wouldn't do anything for them, but they would be faithful to their idol. But the nation of Israel, the true God, and they couldn't be true to the true God. Now, apply that to us. I'm applying Jeremiah to us. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We are children of the family of God. And what do we choose to do? (laughs) We choose to find our affections in the world sometimes, don't we? We choose to find our satisfaction in the world. We trade our God for new ones, even though they're not gods at all. Yes, my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So, the living water comes from God. We reject that, and instead we embrace dryness, emptiness. That's what the world offers, dryness and emptiness. So, back to James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So moving on to the next part of that verse, it says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So this means that God doesn't change. And we can be thankful for that. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Okay? Forever. There's no variation with him. This means that he's dependable and he will never let us down. If he's good now, he's always going to be good. He's never, ever going to break his promises and he will never leave us or forsake us. And some of my favorite verses are in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 to 6. It says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So, you know, the obvious thing that stands out there is those two wonderful promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you, and the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? But you know what? There's more to this, and I've only just realized what it is as I was studying for this message. Let your conduct be without covetousness, Be content with such things as you have. What's the previous verse? It's about marriage. It's about sexual sin, right? What's the key to overcoming sexual sin and not being a fornicator or adulterer who will be judged by God? Be content with such things as you have. What things do we have? What do these verses in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 say? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What things do we have? We have relationship with God. Be content with your relationship with God. Find your satisfaction in the Lord and you will not be drawn to those other things which will lead to judgment. Does that make sense? The only way to overcome the things of the world is to have a greater love. Our love for God must be greater and we must be content and satisfied with our relationship with God. 
that means it must be strong. And then our desires for those other things will be less and we'll be content. So it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. That's the key. That's the answer. And it hit me. I thought, wow, that's awesome. So the such things as you have is actually God himself. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's how it's been from the beginning. God gives us himself and there is nothing that can be compared to the joy of abiding in the love of God. Adam and Eve, what do they have? The joy of the Lord as they abided in the Lord before they sinned, of course. John 15, 9-11 I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. So when we remain in relationship with God, when we find a contentment and satisfaction in our relationship with God, we will experience the joy of the Lord flowing through us. And I've just said here, walking in obedience to God, motivated by love for God, brings the highest form of pleasure that any human can experience. You will not find a pleasure in the world which compares with the pleasure that we can get from abiding in the Lord, from walking in obedience. Is that just my opinion? No, it's not. Psalm 16 verse 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now what does the Bible say about the pleasures of the world? They are the passing pleasures, the temporary pleasures. What does the Bible say about the pleasures that we get when we are in relationship with God? They are pleasures forevermore. The path of life, not the path of death. Fullness of joy. So, if we're willing to be content with our relationship with God, to by faith believe that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, we will seek no other form of contentment or satisfaction or fulfillment. So Adam and Eve stopped pursuing their love relationship with God. They forsook their relationship with God and they ended up miserable. And last week we said that Satan offers short-term gain but the result is long-term pain and discomfort. Now, remember, the ultimate gift, the Messiah and Saviour of all mankind, literally came down from heaven from the Father of lights. He is the ultimate perfect gift. There can be no greater gift than the life of the precious Son of God given to redeem me and you and cause us to be adopted into God's glorious and eternal family. Now, the phrase, the Father of lights... Now, this is contrasted to shadows, right? So the opposite of light is shadow or darkness. And there's a quote from Guzik here. It says, according to Hybert, the ancient Greek is actually the father of the lights. The specific lights are the celestial bodies that light up the sky both day and night. The sun and stars never stop giving light, even when we can't see them. Even so, there is never a shadow with God. When night comes, the darkness isn't the fault of the sun. It shines as brightly as before. Instead, the earth has turned from the sun and darkness comes. So what picture is that? Did the sun stop shining or is it just we've turned our back? We've turned our back, haven't we? Yeah. 
God always desires to bless us, but we're not always in a place to receive those blessings because we're not choosing to be content in our relationship with God, in our love relationship with God. So God never turns away from us, but we can turn away from God. Now going on to verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he brought us forth, and I quote from Trapp, The word properly signifies, he did the office of a mother to us, bringing us into the light of life. And that's the end of the quote there. So this is us being born again, born of the Spirit, transferred into the kingdom of God and adopted into God's family. He brought us forth. Now it says, of his own will he brought us forth. Not because someone told him to, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And Spurgeon has a quote and he explains what this means. He says, Now mostly, men who are generous need to have their generosity excited. They will need to be waited upon. Appeals must be laid before them. They must sometimes be pressed. An example must lead them on. But of his own will, God did to us all that has been done without any incentive or prompting moved only by himself, because he delighteth in mercy, because his name and his nature are love, because evermore, like the sun, it is natural to him to distribute the beams of his eternal grace. So what that is saying is that God loves to bless us. Even though it cost him so much when he died on the cross, he willingly did that because of his great love for us. So. Of his own will. God did this. God saved us because he wanted to. There's just something that really spoke to me. It's one of those special scriptures that really demonstrates the love of God, his heart towards us. So salvation is a gift given by God and not something we can work for or earn. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's of his own will. God saves us simply because he wants to, because he loves us, and there's no other reason. And of course, you know Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was no worth in us to save us. It was only because it was of his own will. Then verse 18 in James chapter 1 goes on to say, by the word of truth. How is a person saved? Well, by faith, by hearing the word of God. Faith that comes by hearing the word of God. Romans 10.17 And Romans 13 verses 19 to 20 tell us that by the word of truth comes the knowledge and conviction of sin. So salvation comes by hearing the word of truth, the word of God. Jesus makes this clear in Luke chapter 8 verses 11 to 12 and is a part of the parable of the sower. It says this, Now the parable is this. This is the explanation. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So what do they need to be saved? It's the truth from the word of God. It's the gospel. And verse 18 goes on to say that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And Guzik has a quote. He says, We can see God's goodness in our salvation as he initiated our salvation of his own will. 
God initiated our salvation. He did it. He started it by coming and dying on the cross. And then he sends his spirit to woo us in, to convict us and bring us in to this relationship. So as he initiated our salvation of his own will and brought us forth to spiritual life by his word of truth, that we might be to his glory as first fruits of his harvest. So here is a contrast. The lust of man brings forth sin and death, and the will of God brings salvation, described as a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So now I'm going to move on to an application. I'm not going to keep going in James. Discerning between God's good gifts and Satan's deceptive gifts. There's a big problem in our culture, and unfortunately in our church, and that is sexual immorality. So going back to verses 16 and 17, it says in James chapter 1, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So this is really important for today's world to hear and understand, so I'm going to spend some time with this. We receive gifts from two sources, the good and perfect gifts from the Father of lights and the deceptive and harmful gifts that are on offer from Satan through the world. Now, it's actually quite difficult to discern, I mean, without the Word of God, to discern what is a deceptive and harmful gift and what is a good gift, okay? For example, if I come into a large inheritance or if I win the lotto, people might say, well, that's a good gift. Wow, aren't you well off? Aren't you blessed? But what often happens when families come into a lot of money is they fight and they argue and that's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. And families have broken up because they've won the lotto. That's not a good and perfect gift. Another example is the instant gratification of our God-given desire for emotional and physical intimacy. I would say this is only for young people, but unfortunately it's not. It's for, in today's society, every age of people. They say, if I only had a girlfriend or boyfriend, I'd be happy. And or, if I could just kiss her and be intimate with her, I'd be satisfied. And this is currently one of Satan's most successful but also most destructive lies. So this bait, think of fishing, right? This bait of instant gratification of our God-given desire for physical intimacy and our desire to be loved and accepted is being swallowed by people hook, line and sinker, (laughs) both in the world and in the church, unfortunately. Now what happens to fish when a fish gets caught? It gets eaten, yeah? 1 Peter 5, 8 to 11. Be sober, self-controlled, restrained. That's what the word sober in the Greek means. Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walked about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It's like he's going fishing, yeah? Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It says it's not going to be easy to resist, right? The same sufferings, yeah? But may the God of all grace, what's grace? His unmerited favour, the power he gives us to overcome. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, 
perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Set you on a firm foundation. That's what settle means. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, the suffering is for how long? A while. Okay, is it forever? No, it's for a while. And what's the suffering produce? What's the effect? It's to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. To give us a firm foundation, to make us mature. Yeah? Make us strong. And as I said before, that Greek word translated sober, nepho, in 1 Peter 5, 8, it means to be self-controlled or restrained, to abstain from something. And it could be wine, be drugs, alcohol, and sexual temptation. Or anything else that we're tempted with. It could be chocolate for me. <laughs> so, remember, we were learning last week about enduring temptation. We need to develop that patience or perseverance, that endurance, which is the ability to remain strong under pressure and not seek to escape the pressure, to get out under that weight of trial. And this quality is very similar to self-control. And so I'm going to be talking today about and focusing on the temptation of instant gratification and how it applies to God's good and perfect gifts. Now an example, when Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, if Jesus would only worship him, Satan was basically saying, Enjoy the gain without enduring the pain. So the temptation is, why wait when you can have it now? You want to suffer to get it? Just worship me, obey me, submit to me, and you can have anything you want whenever you want. It's just that I'll be your master. <laughs> Hidden phrase there, he didn't say that, did he? He didn't say that I'll be your master, you'll be my slave. No, he left that bit out, conveniently. So. Overall, the desires of our sinful nature are for two things, instant gratification and comfort. This world wants to be comfortable and they want to get what they want. And that's how the governments control people. They say, if you don't get the jab, we're going to fine you. Like they are in the Northern Territory, you know. <gasps> Take away our money. Oh no, we have to get the jab, you know. That's just an example but. It's amazing what people will do to remain comfortable and to get what they want. Now, coming back to our sexual immorality issue here and marriage. Think about this. Marriage requires a lot of self-control and a lot of self-discipline to remain pure until we actually get married. So you meet someone and you realize, well, this person could be my future spouse. But then those desires for the physical start to come, which is natural. But what do we do with those desires? Do we gratify them straight away? Or do we delay our gratification? Do we exercise self-discipline to remain pure until marriage? Also, once we are married, maintaining our commitment to love our spouse is not a comfortable thing. It involves much sacrifice and discomfort as we have to continually die to our sinful nature. That's why a lot of people get divorced is because it's not comfortable to have to keep being unselfish. Because you can't stay together if you're selfish. You'll end up just fight, fight, fight and you'll, you'll split. But if you're going to die to self, if you're going to go through that discomfort, then you will have a good marriage. So, 
practically speaking, I believe, and wants to get married, they meet a potential spouse. Well, what's the temptations you're going to face, the challenges you're going to face? Well, today's world is really, really sexualized. Everything is about sex, advertising, the movies, all that kind of stuff. Marriage has been put as a archaic thing. The Bible tells us to treat our spouse, in fact, any young lady or any young man, if you're a lady, as a brother or a sister. So, 1 Timothy 5.2, Treat an older woman as you would your mother and treat the younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Hebrews 13, 4. We've read this before. Marriage is honourable among all. It's what? Honourable, yeah? And the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So, it sounds like a foolish question, but do you go around kissing young women on the lips? Do you go around kissing your brothers and sisters on the lips? You go, that's silly. I don't even kiss my daughters on the lips. You know, they're getting older now. So how I treat my sister, even my daughters, is how I should treat my future spouse if I was not married and I was going to get married. That's how I should be treating my future spouse until the day that we actually get married. God says, first off, wait, remain physically pure, treat your future spouse as a sister and I will bless you. And we'll get into how God blesses us later. Now what does Satan say? In contrast, Satan says, why wait to kiss your future spouse until your wedding day? And why even get married when you can have all of her now? After all, you're going to be together eventually anyway, right? So why wait? It's only a few months difference, maybe a year, whatever it usually takes to get engaged and get married. Why put yourself through all that pain called delayed gratification and burden yourself with all the unnecessary commitment? Well, my friends, let's take a look around and see the effects of this deception. Dysfunctional families, millions of abortions, that's murdered babies, single parent families, poor work ethic, gangs, and there's also the increased crime, depression, suicide, drug use, drunkenness, and much higher rates of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. And the world calls this love. <laughs> it's love, they say. As long as we love each other. But look at the results. Love is selfless, while lust is selfish. Okay? And I haven't yet met one single mum or dad who doesn't regret not doing things God's way by waiting for his good and perfect husband or wife for them. They thought that sleeping with that boy would be fun, exciting, romantic, you know? But the end of it was pain, a lifetime of pain. They took Satan's bait, they believed Satan's lie, they went down the instant gratification pathway, and now they have been chewed up and spit out by Satan. Now, yes, you can repent of your sin, and often God is merciful, and God will you know, bring people together, they can form a family. But 
the effects still go on. And often, a lady or a gentleman will be by themselves for all their life. It's difficult. It's really difficult. Now, there's another consequence of this loose living, and it's when a child is not produced, okay? There's not an illegitimate child, a child born out of wedlock. Physical intimacy results in you giving away a part of yourself to the other person, all right? So 1 Corinthians six fifteen to 18. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. For every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So what does it mean? Well, becoming one body is a good thing in marriage, where the other person is trustworthy and they will care for your heart. They will look after you. They'll protect you, yeah? They'll build you up. It's a wonderful thing. It creates a very special bond. But in a temporary relationship, or when there's divorce, it's a disaster. Now, I remember in a movie, the movie Fireproof, you know, they're having this discussion about marriage and divorce and stuff, and you say, oh, what does it matter about if we get divorced? And, and so the, the guy glues the salt and pepper shaker together. And the fire chief goes, what did you do that for? And he tries to pull them apart. And he says, no, don't, don't pull them apart because if you pull them apart, you'll break either one or the other because the glue is strong. So for those who engage in physical activity, the opposite sex or the same sex, you're going to link yourself. You're going to join yourself to that person. And that can have the result of trapping you in a relationship, a destructive relationship, because you have this bond, this link with that person, this emotional link, physical link, and it's hard to break, even though you know that person is not good for you. Or, if you do get out of that relationship, hopefully you do, then you've got this ongoing scar on your heart. You've given a part of yourself to this other person. And basically, it goes like this, you have this connection with the person, but you can't be with them anymore. Now for myself, to illustrate the power of this physical intimacy and how it joins two people together, when I was a really young teenager, I don't know how it happened, I don't know why it happened, but I still remember it. I kissed a girl on the lips, didn't know her. Why did I kiss her? I have no idea. Okay. But I did. And I still remember it. And I remember after kissing her that I wanted to go and see her again. And I didn't even know anything about her. I don't remember her name or anything about her, but I just had this desire to go and find out where she was. And I was just a really young teenager, maybe 11 or 12 years old. So, you know, I think I got set up. I think my my cousins might have set me up, but... Anyway, because I wasn't the type of kid to go out and chase that kind of stuff, so I think my friends were setting me up. But I just wanted to share that because that shows you the power of that relationship. And the further you go, the stronger the hold and the harder it is to be free. 
God can heal you, but it takes time and it is painful. Then there's those who indulge in pornography as a way of satisfying the instant gratification of their sexual desires, the cravings of their sinful nature. We need to recognize this, and this is true for me as well, when in the past when I had a sexual addiction, it is chasing and swallowing Satan's bait of instant gratification of your God-given desire for physical intimacy. God wants us to wait. Now, what's the consequence? If we do engage in this behavior, this loose living, then the main consequence is we're out of fellowship with God. That's the ultimate price to pay for temporary pleasure. And a verse from the hymn, Trust and Obey, I think says it well. It says, but we never can prove or experience the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. What are we trusting in? Every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven from the Father of lights. And what I'm talking about here is that marriage is that good and perfect gift. Marriage is, aside from Christ, I believe the greatest gift that we can have. So, all who are in bondage to habitual sin, whether it be fornication, sex outside of marriage, adultery, sex with someone else while married, or pornography, whatever form it might take, are being robbed by Satan of experiencing the delights of his love and the favor he shows and the joy he bestows. And you can read that in John 14 through 16. He won't do it now. But from my experience, a pure and Christ-centered marriage is one of the most beautiful and precious gifts that God gives to mankind. It is, aside from my relationship with Christ, it is what gives me the most satisfaction and joy and contentment. And it's also a picture of my relationship with God. I'm a Christian now, but I'm not in the physical presence of Christ. I'm looking forward to being in the physical presence of Christ when I will know him as he knows me. So what I'm in now is in a long distance, and, and you are too, we're in a long distance relationship. Does that make sense? Because we're not in the physical presence of Christ. We do not know him as he knows us at the moment. It's through a mirror dimly. John 14, 1-3, it says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, we are the bride of Christ. He's going to come back. He's going to get us. He's going to take us to be with him, to be where he is. And that, in a spiritual sense, is our marriage to Christ. It's when our marriage with him is consummated. When we get to know him as he knows us. There's nothing about him that we won't know. It's an amazing concept that we will know him as he knows us. Now, Jesus has been preparing this place in heaven for us, this mansion, this house, for almost 2,000 years. And the moment the Father tells him, go, it's time, the trumpet sounds, and we go to meet him in the clouds. And we call it the rapture, and we are living as Christians, or we should be living, I believe, with this growing expectation and anticipation of being in the physical presence of Christ 
and knowing him as he knows us. And that's 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And an example of this, it was an amazing thing. The last three weeks of our engagement, Marissa and I, we were so looking forward to being married, and not just for the physical, but we didn't want to say goodbye anymore. We didn't want to be apart. And it was really hard. Again, I stress it's not just for the physical, it's just to be in each other's presence. So Marissa wrote the poem, No More Goodbyes. It was a beautiful poem. And it was about looking forward to the day we were married and we would no longer have to say goodbye. You know, I'll see you tomorrow, you know, because it's night time now and we can't be together. So it's no more goodbyes. And that's what it's going to be like when we get to be in heaven with Christ. It's that same kind of where we share everything now. Because right now, there's some things that can't be shared with Christ, but when we get there, everything is shared. Spiritually, I'm speaking about. Just like it is in a marriage physically. Now, earlier on in our relationship, we did kiss. God protected us. We didn't go any further. Praise God for that. But for the last five months of our engagement, we put 1 Timothy 4.12 into practice. It says this, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And that word purity is chastity. It's the, the Greek word behind it means chastity, physical or sexually pure. So we need, as Christians, to be pure in our relationships. The Quickest way to ruin your reputation and your witness is to not be pure or chaste. And an important principle here is that the longer we have to wait for something, then the greater its value becomes, the more satisfying it is, and the more we appreciate it when we finally get what was promised. The anticipation and excitement only builds as time goes on. <laughs> I mean... Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for the promised son. Now, if God promised it, Isaac, their promised son, and a week later, Sarah got pregnant, it's going, oh, maybe God promised the son, we got it. Yeah? But she had to wait 25 years. So when it came, they called him Isaac because she was laughing with joy. There's much greater joy because the wait was longer, you see. So, the more you have to wait for something, the more you anticipate it, and the greater the satisfaction and contentment you get when you actually get it, right? And just a quick example. You're in the desert, and your car breaks down. Oh, I've got no water. Someone comes by. I've got a bottle of water. Oh, yeah, thanks. But maybe it's a day goes by, and someone comes by and says, Oh, I've got a bottle of water. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> maybe it's two days goes by, and then someone comes by. And you're begging them, please, going to have that water, <laughs> you know? And so that's basically what I'm saying. It's the more you wait for something, the more you delay the gratification, then the more beautiful it becomes when you actually get it. So the conclusion, only God actually knows what we need, what is really good for our eternal welfare, what will cause us to grow in our relationship with him, and therefore bring God more glory and us more joy and satisfaction as we abide more deeply in his love. The fact is that my sinful nature wants lots of things that aren't good for me. 
and it's sometimes hard for me to distinguish between the desires, appetites of my sinful nature and those of my spirit. And how do I know the difference? I have to be in the Word of God. And the uncomfortable fact is that sometimes the good and perfect gifts that God gives us don't seem to be good or perfect when we receive them. They're not easy. It's not easy to stay pure. It's a struggle. Often it's only later that we appreciate the value of them. But most importantly, never forget the greatest gift who came down from heaven to earth to die in my and your place. Everything is reflected in Jesus Christ, of course. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So what we're going to do now is take communion and just reflect on this. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. God loved us when he sent Jesus to die on the cross and there's no variation or change in him. He hasn't changed. He still loves us with the same love. Father, thank you, Lord, that every good gift and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, from above, from the Father of lights. And we thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that we have in your word. Lord, we know from your word what is a good gift and what is a rip-off, what is going to cheat us, what is going to deceive us, what is going to leave us broken and hurt. Lord, I pray that we will trust you and not fall for the lie of instant gratification. Lord, you endured sin to the point of death. In your struggle against sin, you gave your life. How far are we willing to go in our struggle against sin? Lord, help us to continually, day by day, die to self to keep on repenting and to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have called us with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.